that's been such an interesting conversation too. Like, I feel like at this point, um, like I have so many therapist friends who are like getting out of the game right now and so many ministry friends who are also getting out of the game. Yes. And I, it's just so interesting to talk with folks about how like our understanding of work has changed so dramatically from when we were, mm -hmm. you know, in our 20s to now. And yeah. um, I mean, we could talk about this forever, I feel like. But I, I just, you know, I feel like a lot of I mean, God, you probably saw so much of this, but like. I feel like my generation, like millennials were really sold this whole like do what you love bill yes. of goods, you know, yeah. and yeah. I feel like a lot of people now are like being like, actually, um, maybe that was all a scam <laughs> to get oh. us to like work 24 seven um, because actually maybe work shouldn't be the source of my meaning and purpose in life. Maybe my source of meaning and purpose is actually well outside of my work it's my yeah. family and it's all these other things and my relationships and maybe work should be the thing that facilitates my actual life instead of being my life you know what i mean yeah and mm -hmm. i just i feel like it's just this very dramatic shift and i think a lot of people that i know are encountering it now um because yeah. burnout is so high right now amongst like caretakers right. and on top of that, like we all have like families now, you know, and like making yes. no money to do meaningful work was like maybe something we could do in our 20s. But it's like not something mm -hmm. that we can do now or not as easily. Right. Or not. We're not yeah. as willing to. Yeah. And so I have friends who are now like, you know, therapists who swore they'd never take corporate jobs or like taking corporate jobs because they're like, I want to get adequately yeah. compensated for my labor and I want benefits and yeah. I want time off. And like, um, I get it, you know. So, yeah. God, I don't even know how we got to this point, but I just, I feel like, um, oh, just, just, yeah, conversation, a lot of conversations about work and mm -hmm. like how we understand work as opposed to like when we were like young and naive and idealistic and like wanted to help people, you know? Yeah. And mm -hmm. like uh, our immigrant parents like weren't totally wrong <laughs> about work. Yeah. Like you actually oh, yeah. do. No <laughs> Money's really helpful. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much wisdom that we discarded in yes. the hubris of our youth. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I think that's a great, I mean, and, and some of that I think was, is normal, right? Like all families, mm -hmm. I think have that kind yes. of push pull yeah. between generations. But I think especially because our parents were not from here, I think it was like yeah. easy, at least for me to discard yes. their wisdom. Cause I was like, you don't know how it works yeah. here. Um, right. And now I'm oh like, my. Oh, actually, it doesn't matter where you live. <laughs> Money is yeah. very helpful. <laughs> yeah. At this stage yeah. of life, especially. Mm -hmm. So. And faith was a, you know, uh, faith was sort of the, uh, what is it? Um, uh, the wrench that kind of um, disrupted our thinking around this because our faith not only enabled us, but encouraged us to, to think in the uh, very, um, countercultural ways that were actually very cultural of the culture. Yes, yeah, that's a that's a really good way to put it. I feel like a lot of this language of like, I mean, you're right because it was totally messages of faith that were totally out of like white individualistic mm -hmm. context that were like, yeah, yes. like you're created for a purpose. Um, right, you got to follow your calling. Mm -hmm. uh, 
even if it's like you got to like leave your family behind if it comes yeah. between if you have to decide between following Jesus or your parents right. um and yeah as you just said so astutely like that was all also very cult- culturally bound you know so all along the way it was a way of feeding the capitalist machine evangelicalism being co-opted co-opted for capitalist ends all over the place well it turns out many of the leaders already knew this it's the rank and file evangelicals and um you know and people of color especially were were hoodwinked into um being part of the system yeah maintaining the status quo i mean we've already kind of rolled into our our, our topic for today because like many people uh, many participants in Christianity saw themselves sort of as standing above the rules. The rules don't apply to them. And these were the men, right? Often white men, but let's just focus on gender for, for, this, for the sake of this conversation. They were men who saw themselves as immune to these rules. So, um, well, so last month we focused on gender and justice and one of the one of the sayings i don't even know if um if i heard it this way but it's it just echoes in my mind that the church is women with other minoritized identities and sure. the church is an unsafe place but i think it's so profoundly true and it's really important to grapple with this the fact that the church is an unsafe place for women mm-hmm. um, and i think we have to interrogate that and, and try to think about why that is but i wonder how how you have experienced as someone who has um with uh who has some experience in this how have you um in your life experienced the relationship between gender and justice in the church or in your kind of christian faith this is such a good question and in reflecting on it prior to now like leading up to our conversation i think one thing that was very 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 helpful for me is that i did not grow up in the church And I am the child of a very feminist mom who Mm. was very professionally successful. She outranks and outearns and outworks my dad. Um, She has like never questioned whether or not her voice is valuable Mm. and has like always just assumed that she had a place at the table and I now in my middle age realize like how impactful Mm. that model was for me and how grateful I am that like I have never really questioned like if my voice is worth Mm. hearing, you know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. um, so then when I did become a Christian at 15, um, I felt like I had many, many, many years of messaging that like I was an equal, I was just as smart as anybody else, if not smarter. Like um, there were just no questions for me about whether or not men yeah. and women were equally capable. And so it was very wow. strange then. And, 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 to, and to be completely fair to the context, you know, I, I started going to a church where I also felt like I did not get messaging to the contrary. Like oh. the church, my, the, my home okay. church, I felt like um, did not tell me that I was less capable. It gave me tons of opportunities. Like it was full of Mm -hmm. smart, competent women. Like, um, but you know, once I started getting deeper into evangelical culture and I I would Mm -hmm. hear things like, Oh, like what women can't be leaders and pastors. Like, how do I, how do I make sense of that in light of 
my own experience and what I see in like the women all around me who are all very smart and competent people. And I think I spent mm-hmm. a few years in the beginning trying to like wrestle these these things into um to wrestle these two ideologies like into yeah. some kind of like compatibility or harmony. Right. And you know, by saying things like, oh, maybe women, men and women are just gifted differently and no one is less important. You know, like a lot of that language, yeah. very separate but equal language if we want to draw the parallels mm-hmm. of race. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But there came a time, it just doesn't hold up. Like, and so, yeah. but it was not hard for me, I think, because of the 15 years of messaging that I had before my like neo-fundamentalist chapter. It was not hard for me to let go of the idea that men and women um like might not be equal you know what i mean so yeah um but we know what i see in a lot of people who grew up i see that a lot of people who grew up in the church had a very different experience and yes we're told from very young ages that they were to be silent that they were for some reason not um equipped to teach Mm -hmm. or lead or be heard in meaningful ways and I can see how, you know, even though a lot of these folks, you know, have grown out of that and have no longer believe it, I can see just kind of like the imprints um, that Mm -hmm. that messaging has left in their lives. And I also see that, you know, even if they no longer believe these things, they're still in a society that's still incredibly sexist. And if they are still church going people like churches are still super sexist, right? And even the ones that claim to be to be woke, quote unquote, on this issue, mm-hmm. like a lot of times, you know, men still take up a ton of space or they assume that they, you know, deserve a lion's share of the of the uh airtime mm-hmm. or power. Yeah. Um the you know, even in spaces that say that they are, you know, not sexist, like a lot of the structures are still set up in a way that privilege men. So mm-hmm. um, for me, and I for I feel very allergic to that. I have a really hard, yeah. personally, I have a very hard time with that. I'm like yeah. pretty, I, my default with like Christian male leaders is to be suspicious uh, until yeah. proven otherwise. And yeah. uh, to be honest, that's, I'm, there's been very that I'm usually right. I think that's the path of wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> right. For good reason. Like you have lots of empirical data to back up your position. Yes. And it's and you know, sexism is one of those things that like it cuts across cultures, right? So mm-hmm. it's not like one of those things where like, you know, in Asian American church spaces, I can feel at least somewhat protected from white supremacy and racism. Yeah. But in Asian American mm-hmm. church spaces, I am not protected from sexism at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in some Asian American church spaces, I feel the effects of it sometimes even more keenly than I do in white spaces oh, wow. because um, – I feel like sometimes, you know, this is obviously present company excluded. Like sometimes I feel like leaders of color. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, that's very generous of you to say about yourself. But like I feel like sometimes leaders of color, male leaders of color, um, they feel understandably so oppressed in mainstream society that when they are leading their own communities, they're like, this is where I have power. And sometimes they kind of double down on that. I don't know if that's relates mm-hmm. resonates with your experience at all yeah um, absolutely so 
it is it is one of the unlike racism which is you know mm. everywhere like yeah. uh but at least was somewhat mitigated when i was in asian american church spaces like sexism and patriarchy is something that um affects every church community every, you know and so it's it's inescapable yeah. in that way yeah well i just want to pull on the thread the beautiful thread of your mom's uh enduring influence on you like i think that's a really beautiful thing because we were just talking in an earlier conversation about how we've discarded the wisdom of our immigrant parents but it sounds mm. like here in this in this area you actually held on to that and it's served you well so i, I think that's a really beautiful account um, yeah yes thank you that you've been shaped yeah, I have a lot of appreciation for her, obviously, yeah. but also like yeah. in, in a in a sh paradoxically, it also makes me very grateful for all the time that I didn't spend in church because I think my life would have been very yes. different or could have been very yeah. different if I had been, you know, fed very different yeah. messages from a very young age. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really important question to ask because it's not a theoretical it's not a theoretical question for so many people. Like what happens if in the first 15 years of your life, you are indoctrinated in this way of thinking that says, not only are you not equipped, I mean, this goes to our next question I wanted to ask you. Oh, before um, we get there, can it, I yeah, flip the same yeah. question on you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, now? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to ruin your beautiful segue, but <laughs> I'm okay. curious we'll for you there. because I imagine for a lot of your life, you did not have to think much about the relationship between gender and justice in the church. Yeah. And so I'm curious, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm curious if that is a correct assumption or not, but I'm also yes. curious like what your awakening to that has been like. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, it's an uncomfortable question, but it's a good question. So I, I, I appreciate it. I think... I, I would acknowledge, and this is where I would say, um, no, I'm not, um, I'm not exempt from this because I've experienced the benefits and the comforts of being um, part of a, a culture where the status quo says, hey, you don't have to get up and do the dishes, hmm. right? You can keep watching the TV um, and there will be other people, usually people of the other gender who will be able to um, fulfill those obligations. Hmm. And so there's a benefit that that I think men just enjoy. I grew up in a Korean American family where I almost never saw my dad um, do some of the household chores, mm -hmm. uh, and so that's kind of inculcated in you, and and yeah. and to and there's muscle memory that builds. So hmm. I think you know um, the pious thing to say is that it's detrimental to everyone in the long run, um, but let's be honest and say there are benefits, um, and so it's it's uh, I don't yeah. So it's complicated. And I think I would say one of the ways that that I have been challenged um, and helped to move out of that mindset, and I, I, I can't claim that I'm completely out of that mindset, um, but the examples of powerful women leaders in mm. my life mm. that I have, without even thinking about it, you know, and maybe the, the language, the, the old theolog theological language would have been, that I was submitting to their authority, but that I wanted to, like I wanted their leadership to impact my life. I wanted, mm -hmm. I wanted them and their wisdom to challenge me or to encourage me, and I wanted to learn from them. And so having, so I think I was blessed with so many people like this in my life for for whatever reason, 
mm-hmm. that I it just never made sense that so-called biblical teaching that women are not supposed to lead hmm. it just didn't make sense it didn't make yeah. logical sense spiritual sense because of the the cloud of witnesses that surrounded me kind of like your mom you know when mm-hmm. you have these real life embodied examples uh these um these silly arguments that say you know it's not supposed to be that way um don't really make sense yeah so do you, would you say that that was like your kind of awakening to like was it was mm. it like the female leaders in your life that kind of made you like wake up to just the like the inequality like the messages that you had received as a child or like did, is that what started making you ask questions or were there were there more kind of moments of awakening on this journey for you I don't want it to sound like I'm um standing above the fray here but I don't even feel like there was an awakening because mm. because because of the presence of women leaders in my life hmm. um I can't remember a time where I thought what the Bible is teaching um, on women not being supposed to lead is the right interpretation. Hmm. Um, and I, w- I think I was blessed to know that there were alternative readings and interpretations. Hmm. And so I know I don't think I was ever um, at any period in my life, you know, in that complementarian camp of hmm. well, Paul clearly says women can't be leaders, and therefore yeah. any women that aspire to be in the leadership role is um, acting, you know, counter to the will of God. Like that never, so I never had to depart from that. So mm-hmm. maybe that's another thing too, is uh, what kind of theological starting point um, are you working out of maybe? For sure, for sure. Did I? What denomination were you growing up? So I was in the Christian Reformed Church growing okay. up, and um, it's funny that you asked that because the the position of the CRC officially was that um, women should not be leaders hmm. right? until the late mid late nineteen nineties, and, wow. and this became a much more controversial topic. Yeah, and the church decided, hey, this is going to be a wisdom call. We're not going to make an official pronouncement. Hmm. We're going to make this a local decision which is a very unsatisfactory um, landing spot for, you know, for everybody. Yeah. But prior to that, the church's official stance was women can't be leaders. That's so interesting. I wonder if this is one of those things where like being in an immigrant church is mm. just like you have like a very different, ex- you have sometimes have a different experience yes. than like what everybody mm-hmm. else has just because like you have not, it's like an all hands on deck situation because you don't have yeah. like resources. And so like everybody in the community kind of rallies. Mm-hmm. Um, I came to faith in a Christian and missionary Alliance church where uh, the yes. official line is also that women yes. cannot be leaders, but, right. um, and you know, in hindsight, I'm like, I guess that is true. I, there were no, that the senior pastor, as far as I'm aware of the church where I came to faith has always been a man, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, I still feel like, I don't know, sometimes like Immigrant churches, I, I, f- I feel like sometimes like the theology from above gets like mitigated yeah. by like lots of immigrant experiences, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. It's blurry. The lines are blurred. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those reasons why like a lot of immigrant churches feel the same no matter what denomination they are, because like right. those like immigrant experiences kind of trump 
a lot of <laughs> theological differences. But anyway, yeah. that's a bit of a tangent. Yeah, Korean churches, you, you judge them by the quality of their food afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and it's all the same. Like Chinese churches all have this, they all feel exactly the same. They all serve the same lunch after. It's mm-hmm. like they serve tea, yeah. hot water, the same kettle. It's anyway. <laughs> this, is a, this is a tangent but it's like they're all going to the same costco or something truly all going to the same costco that's exactly right um but yeah that is super interesting yeah i gotta think about this more too because um yes my Im- immigrant church blurred these these boundaries but also mm-hmm. it was very patriarchal and hierarchical mm. right and so yeah, got to think about my own genealogy of, of thinking around this. But Yeah, that's super interesting. Okay, yeah. thank you for entertaining the question. Um, yeah. We can now – I won't be able to segue <laughs> as well as you did earlier when I interrupted you, but I would love to hear where no, you were okay. going. <laughs> well, okay, so this, I think this is all connected because the argument is to some degree that women are not equipped and they just don't have the requisite skills and wouldn't be good at it anyway. And so, you know, why go through the pain and the awkwardness and which is a horrible and, you know, incorrect argument, Mm -hmm. but it's more insidious than that because the, the theological teaching um, in many of these conservative complementarian um, contexts is it's dangerous for Mm. women, right? It goes against human nature and, and the order of things to allow women, even that language is so condescending, but you know, to allow women would be to, uh, to, uh, to let in perverse, um, dangerous possibilities. And, um, and then a lot of this is related to purity culture. And so I wanted to read a portion. So we spent, we had the great fortune last month of, um, learning from Kristen DeMay and working through her first book. And she's probably best known um, today as the author of Jesus and John Wayne, uh, which is her second book. But her first book is A New Gospel for Women, Catherine Bushnell, and the Challenge of Christian Feminism. And uh, she did such a, a marvelous job setting the historical context and contrast, but also overlap between our time and the Victorian period. And so one of the things that she says um, in a uh, in an article she wrote, this is not from the book, but let me just, it's kind of long, but let me read it for us and then ask you a question about this, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian sexual ethics in the Victorian era had been framed by a belief in an innate female purity. Women were seen as the font of social and sexual virtue. And female virtue was critical to society because men certainly couldn't be counted on to pursue virtue on their own. Men were naturally inclined toward lust, it seemed, and therefore it was up to women to exhibit proper restraint, or at least most women. Fallen women, prostitutes, and other women who had traded, traded away their purity had a different role to play. Society needed fallen women to protect the purity of true women, providing an outlet for men's lust um, and bring things back into balance. But female reformers under the leadership of prominent Christian women understood the danger such constructions of sexuality and morality um, posed to women. And so the question I wanted to ask, because I think this is, okay, so it is a little bit different from the topic that we we're talking about earlier, which is women and kind of spiritual leadership. Mm-hmm. And this is more pertaining to women just in general, right? How, like, how are men and women uh, supposed to relate to one another? And outside of the context of spiritual leadership, women are supposed to be pure. They're supposed mm-hmm. to be virtuous, especially in the household context. Yeah. Um, 
And so we're no longer in the Victorian period, but some of these same dynamics are still with us. And I, I guess I wonder, how would you say th this notion of purity culture, um, which sets up a, a kind of a double standard, um, how would you say that purity culture shows up and operates today in Christian contexts? And then why or how is it problematic? I love this passage so much. Um, in part because, you know, she specifically talks about this as like Victorian era thinking, but like yeah. all of this could be 100% applied to like yes. any evangelical youth group today. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. boys cannot control themselves. So yes. it's on girls to protect them, protect boys and also protect themselves by basically mm – -hmm. Um, keeping ourselves clean and not wearing spaghetti straps and on and on and on and on and on. So basically women have to be the ones who police men who can and, and, and men, they simply can't help themselves. So they experience no accountability and no repercussions for their behavior. Um, all of those repercussions fall on women. So if anything bad ever happens, like, oh, it's because of how you were dressed or, oh, it's because of how you said mm -hmm. this. And truly, um, uh, men bear none, none of the responsibility yeah. for any of their yeah. shitty behavior. Pardon my language. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that's not limited to Amen. evangelical circles, right? Like we yeah. hear this all the time mm -hmm. um, when it comes to cases of sexual assault and sexual harassment and yeah. – you know, I feel like the Me Too movement has done a lot to help people reflect more on this, on mm -hmm. the ways that these messages have gotten internalized and um, are just so common in society that, like, they're kind of like the water we live in, right? We don't even see it. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that it made some men reflect a little bit on their behavior and, yeah. like, the responsibility that they bear. But... Yeah. Uh, by and large, I think not a whole lot mm. has changed. Mm. But I think, you know, in terms of like how I feel like it shows up, I mean, there is this very explicit way that I feel like it shows up. But, you know, a lot of my a lot of people that I know who grew up in in churches that were very purity culture forward, like they still carry a ton of shame and guilt, even though, you know, they know that in spite of what they know now that, you know, they're not responsible for anything that the things that men did to them. Mm -hmm. um, I still think that they like there's it's really hard to unlearn these messages going back to what we were saying earlier. So yeah. um, I'm glad we're in a moment where people are reflecting more on this. There's books being written. There are recovery groups happening. Like that's all wonderful. But like I, I, there's so much that needs to be done, I feel like, to um, – reform if that's even possible yeah. there's so much being done yeah. i think to treat the people who have survived purity culture but i i don't mm -hmm. know that enough is being done to actually challenge to, to yeah. stop it from happening if that makes sense yeah. mm -hmm. well i think it's just helpful to hear you say and i would agree that not much has changed mm -hmm. and um, the clarity with which you can observe that so much of uh, Christian teaching on sexuality and behavioral norms are actually Victorian, like the vestiges of Victorian culture that we yeah. never departed from, right? That we never left behind. Yeah. Um, and, 
And so, which means it didn't always have to be this way, and it wasn't always this way, but the mm -hmm. church, for whatever reason, has chosen, or many Christians have chosen, to uh, fixate on this particular period and say, this is the period from which we will um, derive the norms, right, that help us to operate. Which doesn't make, it's not that surprising, I guess, in light of how we started mm -hmm. this conversation where you're talking about like men being immune to so many things because like purity culture yeah. is like a very convenient vehicle to like keep men immune from consequence or like loss yes. of power, right? Yeah. Um, if men can never be blamed and can never be held responsible for anything, like it just keeps men in a position of power and it like puts all the shame and guilt and consequence onto women, which then like, mm. you know, further perpetuates men having power. So yeah. um, in that light, it doesn't, it's not that surprising that even though that like this vestige of the Victorian era is still with us and still so popular and still so insidious. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really convenient arrangement for, um, a situation where uh, the authority structures say, hey, women, you have a really important task, which is the upkeep of mm. purity and virtue. Yeah. And so you take care of that and mm -hmm. then you uh, leave the rest to the men. Like, right. you know, the this messy work of church leadership, like the men will take care of it because right. we don't mind right, getting our yeah. hands dirty in these ways. Like we're just wired for it. Yeah, and this is one of those like separate but equal things, right? Like this is your yeah. very important job, and like when you start yeah. to pick at it, you realize that it's actually, yeah, nonsense. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is where complementarianism comes from. That that term, it may be a term that's not familiar to many people, but it's this very conservative traditional um, definition of um, gender and sexual uh, sexual roles where men are given um, their uh, job description and women are given a very different set of uh, instructions and they're complementary to each other. And then I think the great virtue that um, complementarians will bestow upon themselves is, hey, we're just paying attention to how women and men are wired and we're allowing them to flourish in, their, in the fullness of who they're supposed to be. Clearly women are you know, created differently from men. And so it's complementary. Um, but I think we've just talked about all the ways in which it's problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another, another really helpful part of the work that we did um, last month was um, following Catherine Bushnell's journey of wrestling with scripture. And, and we don't want to, you know, heroicize, this to the extent where you know she could do no wrong and everything that she did is supposed to be bottled up and we're supposed to just do you know kind of uh, slavishly practice what she taught but she did have some incredible insights especially that were um, way ahead of her time and so i wanted to just mention a couple of areas of interpretive correction or revisionism or imaginative thinking that um, i think were really challenging to many of us in the community and then um, get a question attached to, to this too. So one area is she Bushnell talked about the um, the sinfulness and the deficiency of the um, of Adam before and apart from 
So we often think of Adam and Eve sinning together, mm-hmm. right? At the instigation of actually the the um, the culpability of Eve. Like Eve is, is the trailblazer in that, and she's the reason, um, and she's she's the one to blame. But Bushnell drew on a rich history of interpretation to point out that the male Adam's deficiency um, was uh, something that was innate to himself. There was a malediction when when God says it is not good for man to be alone. There's some sense of moral failing there, and so um, and so she uh, she saw and she read interpreters of scripture that said uh, there was something wrong, like Adam had done something wrong, and therefore God saw fit to um, to create woman and to and to place her beside him, and so yeah, it was to address this flaw before the fall that God had fashioned Eve in order to bring Adam back into communion with God. So this is uh, from page 112 of the book. And then another observation here. I've got two more. Um, The curse, uh, the original curse was on Adam and not on Eve, according to Bushnell. She advanced this revolutionary notion that Eve had never, in fact, been cursed by God. That's a direct quote from the book. Um, In fact, when when confronted by God, Eve confessed, whereas Adam became a false accuser of God. Remember, Mm. um, or... Uh, you know, if you look in Genesis, uh, Adam actually says, the woman that you put here, like she's the one, she's the reason I was mm-hmm. led astray. He's not only blaming her, he's also blaming God. Um, and then the last thing that I'll mention, there's so much more here, but one of the, one of the amazing theological insights that um, Catherine Bushnell offered was, if Eve was guilty of anything, it was her decision to submit to Adam Right, and to turn away from God and to follow Adam out of the garden, hmm. and I think what this shows us there's so much. I, I think so many uh, directions in which we could take this conversation, but at the very least, um, what it makes me realize is that there's so much that is lost when straight men dominate the conversation in faith spaces, and when it's men who are doing the interpretive work and the scholarly work of writing biblical commentaries and preaching sermons. And so the question I want to ask you is, what are signs of change and hope that you see uh, when it comes to gender and justice and, um, and women, specifically women leading um, in faith spaces? And what would you like to see less of? And what would you like to see more of in this area? Oh, this, these, this, like this passage, these passages are so good. And just to connect them to what we were saying before, like, I think, like, I can only speak for myself. The vast majority of interpretations I've ever heard in church context about Genesis pin the blame fully on Eve, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes sense to me in light of our conversation why this is, why why this would be so. Because if yeah. you pin all the blame on Eve, then you can just blame women. Like, it's not our fault that women can't lead. It's because of the curse of Eve. It's because of whatever it is that Eve did. And so as a result, women, you know, like you, you can basically like use this as a rationale to be like, yeah. men are great. It's right. women that are the ones that are dangerous, that are fallen, that are yeah. any number of things, right? So yeah. um, 
I really appreciate Bushnell's like close interrogation of the text because yes. mm-hmm. these are not things like even, you know, the seminary that I attended did not push these arguments, but like even the yeah. even there, like Bushnell even having like gone to all these classes, like Bushnell's arguments were new to me and I appreciated right. how yeah. um just different and thoughtful they were. Um, in terms of like signs and of hope and change, God, I feel like I mean, in some ways I see a lot and in some ways I see none. And it just varies so much from context mm. to context, right? Like I feel really yeah. grateful to live in a time where I feel like I mean, I think that society is forcing churches to have these conversations, right? Like in an era of me too, like I think mm. You know, discussions about female equality are happening more and more and more. Um, yeah. I think it is pushing churches to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, some churches I feel like have decided that this that they are not budging on this, and they have decided to basically uh, stop having any conversations that the outside world is having. Right? Like there are some churches that, like, you know. If, if they cannot be on board with women in leadership, how on earth do we expect them to be on board with queer people in leadership? You know what I mean? Like, how on earth do we expect them to be having conversations about white supremacy and on and on? So um, I don't know. There are some places where I see a lot of hope and a lot of reflection, and that's wonderful and heartening. And in some places, I feel like churches have just stopped listening altogether to what's happening around them. And, you know, using passages of the Bible to justify that. So, um, and I think what's tough, too, is that, like, the dismantling of sexism and patriarchy ultimately cannot be done by women. It has to be done by Mm. men at the end of the day. And I think Mm. uh, it doesn't, but it doesn't serve men to have those hard conversations or reflections or to cede power. And so I think that it's, it's very hard. And a lot of men, as we've talked about earlier, who I think um, have reflected on this somewhat are still kind of reluctant to give up power because they don't have any models for what that looks like. Mm. And you could say the same thing for, you know, white people. You could say the same thing for straight people. Basically, any group in power, like if you want to dismantle that structure, it's really on, incumbent on the people who have power to relinquish it. And yeah. um, for that reason, it's really hard to topple these structures. And I think that this is, is no exception. Yeah. yeah. One example that comes, thank you. Thank you for those reflections. And I think that that's really that that catalyzes my thinking in all kinds of ways. Um, and one example that came to mind as I was listening to you is um, the work of our mutual friend, the Reverend Rihanna Shaw. Yes. The Reverend Rihanna Shaw Robinson. Yes. Um, who is in the process of building a faith community called Miriam Song Church, I believe. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. like that. Miriam Song. Yeah. And um, the bold, audacious um kind of invitation that she has extended for this ministry is she said, this is going to be a space and a worshiping community for women of color. Mm-hmm. And I think she actually said, I should have checked on the, the, 
the the facts here, but I'm pretty sure she act actually said it's only for women of color for now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, many people I think have questioned like why, like why can't men come? Why can't you know? Can your son come to this church even? Um, and and she's really held held fast to this idea of it's important. It's not going to be forever. Yes, at some point, you know, I'm gonna you know like children will be welcome and boys will be welcome. Um, but it's really important. It's there's a, a temporality around this, and so it's not always going to be this way. But for whatever reason, well, for all kinds of good reasons, for now it is it is really important and helpful to carve out this space where women of color are gathering to sit at the feet of um, women of color preachers mm -hmm. um, to share testimonies with each other to pray together um, I'm you know I'm sure she could she would do a much better job describing the work of their community but that that's important it doesn't have to be forever and I, I just find that um, kind of discombobulating but also really inspiring and so yeah. I wonder if you have thoughts on that yeah I do I'm really glad you brought I'm really glad you brought up um, the church the community that she's starting because like yeah. when you know when you ask the question of like, what would you like to see more of? I yeah. think it is communities that are led by women and that yeah. center women. Yeah. Um, I think that's the only way for mm -hmm. a faith community to be free of mm -hmm. patriarchy, sexism, toxic masculinity. And that might be hard for men who are listening to hear, but mm -hmm. I think the ways in which patriarchy is like transmitted in so many ways in more yeah. ways than men are aware of. And so yes. I think that if you really want a community that is free of those things, it has to be led by women. And in the same mm -hmm. way, if you want a community that's like free of white supremacy, like it has to be led by people of color yeah. and ditto homophobia and on and on and on. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I love what Rihanna and her co-founders are doing. I really love that they're starting out by only having women of color because again, like the default is patriarchy. Right. So I think mm -hmm. it's really good to start with like yeah. start by centering women of color, make sure people feel safe, make sure people feel empowered before you start letting men in who are going to default, generally speaking, to like yeah. taking up as much space as possible, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I really love what they're doing and I think that th there needs to be more of that. And I feel like at this point in my life, honestly, like I think like theirs is like the only church that I would be excited to attend. Like one that is like oh. specifically centered on um, women, people of color, queer people, like marginalized that want that is really centered on bringing marginalized voices to the, to the fore. Yeah. Does that mean you want to move back to the Bay? <laughs> <laughs> um, I do not. But they have been. They've done a, all of their stuff is virtual right now, and so it is that's like right, there are right. there are opportunities for people to participate. Um, hey, that's a great point. Actually, we should we we will put in the in the show notes um, mm -hmm. a link to um, the the website for Miriam's song. Yeah, um, and I hope it doesn't sound condescending for me to say that I think we're just in a in a time where we need creative experiments. And hopefully some of these experiments would turn into institutions 
um, and organizations and churches. Yeah. Um, but at this point, um, there's so much, I think there's so much space and need um, to try different things. Um, and uh, I'm really thankful for strong leaders who are leading the way. And you've been a friend and a leader in that way too. So thank you for all the ways that you've modeled and, uh, and persevered with patience um, through uh, the learnings across many years. Um, I think this, this work happens only by uh, the example of people like you and many others. So thank you. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you.